When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Brexit Unspun. This is where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. Today, I'm joined by Helen Worrell, our public policy correspondent, and Sam Jones, our defence editor, to look at how security issues will be affected by Brexit. And is it true, as some politicians have claimed, that security will be an ace card for Britain in the divorce negotiations? Helen, first of all, can you tell us which security cooperation measures are a function of EU membership and what these allow police and other security services to do? Sure. Well, the most important of these by far is our membership of Europol, in which Britain is really a sort of national leader. And this coordinates the law enforcement response to crimes which cross EU borders like cybercrime or trafficking or the movement of drugs, that sort of thing. The second one that is really, really important and politically sensitive is access to the European arrest warrant, which allows individuals who are charged with criminal offences to be surrendered from one member state to another member state. The other thing that's very important is that there are a series of information systems which allow police forces around Europe to share real-time alerts on things like the movement of suspects or vehicles or firearms or property around the continent. And this is really important because it allows police in one European country to be fully up to date with the latest intelligence with what's going on elsewhere in Europe. So what are likely to be the difficulties in maintaining these powers after Brexit and what new structures would have to be put in place to allow this cooperation to continue? Well, there's one fundamental problem here and it's incredibly significant. It's that all of these justice powers are subject to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. Now, Theresa May has been extremely clear that this is an absolute red line in her negotiations and that the UK is definitely going to come out of the ECJ at all costs. So the question facing the UK and Europe as these negotiations loom is whether we can negotiate an alternative parallel body which would essentially handle any legal questions that arise in the implementation of these justice powers. Now, this would be difficult, obviously, because it would have to be a separate new body. We don't know whether it would be in Brussels or whether it would be in the UK. We don't know who would administer it. We don't know who would necessarily staff it. But this would have to handle any future disputes which arise. Turning to you, Sam, what is the extent of intelligence sharing with the EU now? And how would this be affected by Brexit? Well, only a limited amount of raw intelligence or intelligence on matters such as terrorism really goes through the EU anyway. And the important thing here is that a lot of these intelligence relationships, because of the sensitivities around them, because of the sensitivities of where some of the information might have come from, are typically managed on a purely bilateral basis. 
And so historically, the EU hasn't really had a particularly outsized role in this. It's got a sort of policy role. And there is a lot of work that goes on between home affairs ministers around coordinating counter-terror policy and responses to counter-terror threats and what needs to be done in terms of making societies and, and cities more resilient. But on the intelligence level, on the sort of raw, the cutting edge stuff around the risks and the potential of terror attacks, a lot of that does not happen through the EU. Instead, it tends to happen through something called the Club de Bern, which is an entirely parallel intelligence sharing arrangement between all 28 EU member states. And that liaises with the EU, and the EU has something called EU INCENT, their Intelligence Analysis Centre, which is part of the External Action Service. That's the EU's foreign service. So they liaise with the Club de Bern, and they do talk about some intelligence stuff. But the Club de Bern is really set up to manage sensitive intelligence material and to control it much more tightly. So in many ways, this whole issue over whether Brexit will affect the intelligence relationships is sort of a little bit moot, because though it might, those will probably be second order effects, there'll be political effects, and the Club de Bern will not be changed by Brexit. So Britain will continue to have a role in the Club de Bern regardless after Brexit? That's right. Essentially, the Club de Bern is not run or connected to the EU directly. So the issue will be a political one, you know, whether people feel that they're less inclined to share stuff with Britain in the club anyway because of sudden sort of change in circumstances around how they regard Britain as a partner. But I don't think that's really going to happen on a functional level. I mean, not least because Britain is Europe's intelligence superpower. It has collection capabilities, it has worldwide capabilities that are far greater than those of other European powers, including the two other big European intelligence powers, France and Germany. Britain really excels and exceeds both of them in terms of intelligence collected through electronic means in particular. GCHQ gets a lot of material that neither France nor Germany have access to. And I think speaking with people that work in the intelligence community, they constantly reaffirm this sort of sense that the threat is too important and too real to be affected by Brexit negotiations and therefore can't possibly be. And I think there's a little bit of bemusement, therefore, that this as an issue has been brought up on a couple of occasions now by Theresa May and others in government. Not in a necessarily threatening way, but even the mention of it is slightly perplexing to some people because of what they regard as the importance of it and the very functional way in which they share intelligence, which is very depoliticised. So, Sam, does that mean it would be completely wrong of the UK government to use intelligence as a card in its negotiations? I think it's certainly a very dangerous game to be playing because it undermines the credibility of the UK in terms of its relationships in intelligence. And if you take the position, as the UK does, that these are relationships which are completely separate from the EU and need to be insulated from them, then you don't really want to go politicising them and risking them. On the other hand, I think you could make the argument that the British government is not actually seeking to mention these as a threatening gesture or to sort of bring up the prospect of the UK walking back on its intelligence sharing with Europe. But it simply wants to highlight the fact that no matter what the outcome of Brexit, the UK has an interest in strong and enduring relationships and alliances with partners in Europe. And therefore, wouldn't it be good if the economic arrangement can be matched to that as well, rather than ending up in a situation where we're kind of pretending to be the greatest of allies purely in the area of intelligence, and meanwhile, busy pulling chunks off of each other in the kind of economic and political sphere. 
As to whether security is an ace card for Britain in these negotiations, one thing that we've actually been warned about by some of the diplomats who've been studying this and who will be involved in it is that it will be so difficult for the UK to maintain its security cooperation with Europe that any goodwill that they have at the outset is likely to be used up in the process of negotiating how we maintain our cooperation in this area. And it's very unlikely that there will be any remaining goodwill that can be transferred to other areas of the Brexit negotiation. So Sam, what about defence? Is it correct that Britain's traditionally outsized role in defence gives it a strong bargaining position? Here, I think less so. I mean, I think Britain has a very difficult relationship in defence terms with Europe to navigate. There's sort of several interlocking parts of that. One is that Britain is very keen to preserve the primacy of NATO. As far as Britain is concerned, NATO is the European defence organisation and the EU should have nothing to do with defence. And what British politicians, British diplomats worry about is that any move to strengthen the EU's defence credibility, any sort of new EU initiatives on defence, may detract from the primacy of NATO and may undermine the importance of that NATO decision-making process and that kind of thing. And so as Britain pulls out of the EU, there is this question over how it will then be able to stop the EU from bulking up on its defence capabilities. And it's interesting that there has been an awful lot talked about in the last few weeks all around Europe of the need for a greater European role in defence planning, in defence procurement, and even in defence operations. And it's interesting, too, that NATO isn't criticising this, quite the opposite. NATO is talking more and more about the need to engage with the EU on defence. Now, for the UK, that puts us in this sort of uncomfortable situation where... Traditionally, within NATO, certainly we've had this outsized voice on defence because we are one of the top contributors in NATO, not just in monetary terms, but also in capability terms. So, you know, when NATO calls, Britain sends stuff and others just don't do that, even no matter what size their defence budgets are. But now in NATO, we've sort of lost control of the debate too around the role that we can play with the EU. And as NATO seeks to embrace the EU more and more, Britain is going to lose out to those other big NATO powers like Germany and like France, which have a seat both in NATO and at the EU table as well, and are therefore able to coordinate policy much more effectively. So Sam, to sum up... Where do you think Britain will be at the end of this process in terms of intelligence and defence? Well, I don't think in the sort of intelligence sphere there will be much change. I mean, I think that would be the optimum scenario. I think the UK has a lot to gain and a lot to give in terms of that intelligence sphere. And I think if that can be insulated from the kind of Brexit issue, then that would be pretty good. And certainly that's the sort of technical position. I think that if you spoke to some of the UK's spy masters, that's what they want anyway. You know, they've recently designated Europe as one of their prime Islamist threat areas. And it's on our doorstep. So if we weakened our intelligence gathering and information gathering capability in Europe because of our Brexit position, that would be pretty disastrous for the UK. But I don't think that's on the cards. In defence, though, I think there are a lot more moving parts. And particularly we're at a moment where the UK has to navigate a much more difficult situation in terms of NATO and in terms of Europe. And the sort of thing we haven't even really discussed in all of this is how all of that process, how Brexit, how NATO's future interacts with the sort of third factor in all of this, which is the US under the Trump presidency. We know, obviously, that Donald Trump is very pro-Brexit and is not terrible 
terribly keen on Europe. And at the same time, it is also not necessarily keen on NATO. And so the question for lots of European leaders in NATO is, is this the moment that Europe needs to seize the initiative to really drive NATO forward and to guarantee NATO's future? And if that's the case, then what is the UK's role going to be with NATO, which is, of course, traditionally the bedrock of our entire defence architecture? Thanks, Helen and Sam, and thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for another unvarnished look at what Brexit will mean for Britain's trade, economy, public institutions and private sector. We hope you'll join us then, and we'd be delighted in the meantime if you wanted to review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you download. You can also email us at brexitunspun, that's all one word, at ft.com if you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.